Again, we're so glad you're here with us tonight, and on Sunday nights, we're studying the book of John, and so you have a copy of God's Word. Look with me to the fourth book of the New Testament, the book of John, as we begin reading in chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Book of John, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and while you're turning there, as Mark's already said, uh, we have a busy week. We have the Easter musical uh, on Friday. We have Easter Sunday coming up, and because the Easter musical is this week, this coming Wednesday night, our prayer meeting will be in the chapel, so they can be in here for a dress rehearsal. So a lot to be in prayer for and to remember uh, things that are taking place this week. Book of John, chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. As we're studying the book of John, again, John gives us information that Matthew, Mark, and Luke doesn't give us. They're stories, and this is one of them not found in the other Gospels. Verse 1, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these laid a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at a certain season into the pool and stirred up the waters. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who he was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that, you, that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working into now, and I myself am working. Let's pray. Our Father, tonight we pray you give us insight into your word. The Father will understand it. Understand, Father, what's taking place, but also, Father, how it applies to us. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a lot of strange questions that people ask. And I'm sure if we went around the room, every one of us have had people ask us strange questions. A couple of years ago, there was a website that invited people to send them strange questions. Here are some of the questions people sent to this website. Should a man about to be executed in the electric chair be saved if he had a heart attack? It's going to take you a while, but I think you're going to get these. All right. If bald people work in a restaurant, do they still have to wear a hairnet? 
do fish get thirsty? Some of us are going to be awake a long time tonight thinking about that one. <clears throat> Why is sandwich meat round when bread is square? I've always wondered that one, I have to admit. That was... When Donald Duck gets out of the shower, why does he put a towel around when he normally doesn't wear pants anyway? And why is a boxing ring square shape? We all have strange questions. We have them. We've had people ask us this strange question. But imagine the Lord of the universe asking a strange question. And Jesus did. Now, understand, it's not a wrong question. It's not wrong at all. It was a perfect question. But for us, hearing it, it was a strange question. In our text tonight, we're going to be looking at Jesus talking to a sick man, and he asked a question you would not have expected Jesus to ask. You know, for years, the sanctuary of Our Lady of Lourdes is a place where people travel all over Europe, all over the world to go on a pilgrimage. They believe there are special properties in the waters there. There's a spring water in that cave they call a grotto that people believe had healing powers. It started in 1858 when, uh, when a 14-year-old peasant girl, Bernadette Subaru, who said that she saw Mary there. She saw Mary many times there, about 18 times she saw her there. And then word got out that Mary was behind, the, behind this, in this cave and the water had healing power. They say over 200 million people have traveled there since 1860 to find healing from the waters. Now, some people do claim they've been healed by the waters. Some have said there have been at least 60 miracles been claimed. Now, the water has been examined by scientists. The water has been examined closely. And what they found in the water is just really clean, pure, inert water. But millions of people go there hoping they can find a cure in water. There's something intriguing about water. I mean, throughout history, we find people looking for that magic fountain. Alexander the Great wanted to find that magic fountain that could bring healing and immortality. Pastor Leon looked for the uh, fountain of youth. We want to find this place, this idea that somewhere out there, there's water that has healing power. Where today, as we look at this text, Jesus is meeting a man who believes there's healing power in the water before him. So let's look at the text. And, and what John does, he gives us some facets concerning this man. The first one is this, the condition of the man. Notice what John says about him. He says, first of all, the man was disabled. Look down at verse 5. <clears throat> a man was there who had been ill or stricken for 38 years. For 38 years, this man has had a problem. We don't know what the problem is. It doesn't tell us. It just says he's ill or stricken. Now, in the case of this man, we do have another clue. In the case of this man, whatever is wrong with him is a direct result of a sin. You say, how do you know that? Well, that's what Jesus said in verse 14. He said, he said to the man, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore. The implication is whatever this man had, whatever condition this man had was because of his personal sin. Now, we have to be very careful here. That's personalized, not universalized. Not all sickness, not all problems are connected to our personal sin. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is broken. 
And sometimes, whether it's cancer or COVID or strokes, that's because we live in a fallen world. But sometimes, there is a direct connection between our sin, our behavior, and our sickness and our health. Years ago, I was talking to a man who had a physical problem, and he told me. He said, Pastor, it's because of my sin. And I said, oh, no, no, this is just an accident. He said, no, you don't understand. He said, I was having an affair. And I was trying to get back to my house before my wife got home. And as I was traveling, I was in a wreck. The car flipped. I am in this bed. I'm an invalid because of my sin. You see, sometimes our sin is a direct connection. This man is that way. And there are other cases where people have been sick and their illness can be connected to sin. Not, not always, because in a few weeks, we're going to see another story in the book of John chapter 9, where a man is blind and the disciples ask Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither, neither one sinned. So don't always think there's a one-to-one connection to sin or physical issues. But in this case, we know it is because God tells us. Now, what happened? We don't know. We just know he's been struggling, disabled, for 38 years. Well, John says not only was he disabled, he was desperate. He had been there 38 years. There was a legend in that day. The legend by this pool was that an angel came and disturbed the water. Now, we know now that that pool of water was fed by intermittent spring, and sometimes the water would flow and under the pool, and it would bubble. Now, if you look in your Bible, some of your Bibles, you may have noticed in verse 3, the, there are some phrases in brackets. You know what that means? That means that that passage what in brackets means that's not in the oldest manuscript. Uh, the, the, in verse 3, it says the movement of the water is by an angel. That's not in the oldest manuscript. And, and so the legend was that, that this angel came, and the people believed it. And the people were there, and they thought, well, if the, the waters bubbled and there was an angel there, if I get to the water first, I'll be cured. So what happened? Were there healings? Well, psycho- psychologists would say these people who were able to get to the pool first probably had psychosomatic illnesses. Because, from number one, they could get to the pool fast. Or those who were able to get to the pool, they are already well enough to get to the pool, and they just claim to be healed. But this man, he really was sick. And he'd been waiting for 38 years. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine going to the hospital and for 38 years waiting to see a doctor? Now, sometimes it seems that way. And every day, the nurse would come out and say, who's next? And you raise your hand. Oh, no, not you. Someone else. 38 years. You would be desperate. And for 38 years, this man, I promise you, felt like a failure. Why can I not get to the pool? How come I can't get healed? Why is my life a waste? He was desperate for healing, and the only in his, in his mind, the only hope was the water. Well, third John says this man was defensive. Jesus asked the question, verse 6, do you wish to get well? And the man says, sir, I have no man to put me into the water, in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus asked the question. He said, well, do you want to be healed? Now, by the way, that's a yes or no question. 
You know, in our family, our kids are growing up, I would tell them, yes and no are answers. You know, I would ask a yes or no question. They would start telling me a story. I said, oh, no, 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 no. The question is a yes or no question. Answer yes, answer no, then explain. Don't explain first. This is a yes or no question. Do you want to be healed? The man doesn't answer him. What he does in verse 7, he gives reasons. He really is offended by the question. He's blaming others. It's not his fault. It's other people's fault. It's others. Look how he said it. Sir, I have no man to put me in the water. It's not my fault. I have nobody. I have no man. No one can help me. Oh, if only I had somebody to help me, I could be in the water. But I have no one. It's all, I'm by myself. He, he said, no one man can put me in the water when the water is stirred. You know, I get there, but not at the right time. I have to wait for the conditions to be right. The waters has to be stirred at the right moment, and I have not been able to get there when the condition is just right. I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. I have no one to put me into the pool. I'm in the wrong place for God's miracle. If I was in the pool, I could be healed. I'm not. I'm in the wrong place. Not my fault. I'm in the wrong place. And all of that, while I am coming, someone else gets in the way. It's their fault. They're in my way. The answer is yes or no, but he is so defensive. He says, it's not my fault. It's everyone else's fault. In fact, he implicates that it's God's fault. Sir, I have no one to put me in the water. Not my fault. God should help me. I have no one to put me in the water. The water is stirred up. That's not my fault. But while I'm coming, another step before me, that's not my fault. Have you ever noticed sometimes when we're hurting, we blame others? Oh, it's not my fault. It's my parents. It's my spouse. It's my children. It's my work. It's my schooling. It's the government. Whoever. We, we want to blame someone for our problems. And this man was so defensive. And also, this man was destitute. Now, it doesn't say that, but I can tell you why I know that. For 38 years, this man had not worked. For 38 years, he'd been lying by the pool. He's already said he had no one to help him, which means he has no family. He has no friends to help him into the water, which means he has no one. He has lost everything. This man lives in rags. He has nothing. He's living by the pool, waiting for the waters to be stirred. Everything in his life was gone except one thing, and that was the hope, the hope of healing in the future. I mean, he had that hope that one day I will get to the water. But that's all he had. He had nothing else. There was a psychologist, University of Israel, studying coal miners. The psychologist was wondering how some coal miners survive and some don't in an accident. Now, where I grew up, we had coal mines, and I'm, I'm claustrophobic, so I would never do coal mining work. But I had friends who did it. They, they had a part-time job going underground. And they all knew that one day there may be a cave-in. They knew one day we, we might be trapped for a while. That, that was in their minds. This psychologist started interviewing those who were saved, those who survived, and he started interviewing those relatives of those who didn't survive. This is what they found out. You're trained as a coal miner. If there's an accident, to sit very still, breathe very shallow, and wait for someone to rescue you. 
You need to have that sense of hope that someone is going to get to you. The people that survived all said, we knew someone was going to get to us. Those who didn't survive, their relatives said, they always said, I don't think anyone will ever come. I don't think anyone will ever get to me. The psychologist said that people with hope will produce a hormone in their brain, in their bodies, that really wards off infection. This is a hormone. If you have hope, whatever sickness you might have, if you have hope, you have a better chance of healing. This man, the only thing he had was hope that one day he is going to be healed. But what he doesn't realize is it's not going to be in the water. It's going to be in the man who made the water. Now notice from the condition of the man to the commands to this man. Look what Jesus says, verse 6. Do you wish to get well? There it is. I think that's a strange question. Here's a man who's been for 38 years sick. And so Jesus asked the question, do you want to get well? I mean, would you ask that question? Would you ask someone who's had a disease for 38 years and you just met the person, by the way, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? That's a very strange question to ask a sick person. Why would Jesus ask that question? I mean, why, why would you ask that kind of question to someone? There's a reason. Jesus is asking the question that, for this reason. He's asking, do you really want to be well at the cost it's going to cost you? Your life is going to be turned upside down. When healing comes, your life is going to be turned upside down, and we find that out after the healing. Everyone's going to be talking to this man. Everyone's going to be coming to this man. He's going to be accused by the Pharisees and the scribes. Your life is going to be turned upside down. Do you really want to be healed at the cost of what it's going to cost you? And by the way, that's a great question to ask anyone. Do you really want what you really think you want? Are you willing to accept what might change your life? So sometimes that that person in debt, do you really want to get out of debt? In other words, do you really want to do what it takes Work hard, save money, pay debt. The person has marital problems. Do you really want to solve your marital problems, you know, to do what it takes to forgive, to understand, to compromise? The person is suffering from addiction. Do you really want, do you really want to be free from the addiction? Do you really want to do what it takes to, to get help, to have somebody, accountability partner? Do, do, that person who's seeking peace in their life, do you really want to have peace in your life? Do you really want to find that peace, understanding it may cost you everything? I've asked those questions before. I've talked to people and asked, do you really want to be changed? Do you really want to get out of debt? Do you want a strong marriage? Do you want to be healthy? And, and many times, after I've finished talking to the people, they'll tell me no. They don't want to pay the price. What Jesus is about to do is something radical. He wants this man to know, I'm going to come into your life. I'm going to turn your life upside down. You are going to be healed physically, but do you really want that at the cost? The man doesn't give him an answer. We just saw that. So look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Now, if the first question was a strange question, this statement is a strange statement. Here's a man who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years. So what does Jesus tell him? You want to be healed? Fine, walk. I mean, look look what he says. 
really a three-parter. He, he said, rise up, take up your bed, and walk. He said, stand up, surrender everything, step out. This man has never done this before, and Jesus is asking the man to do the impossible. He's asking this disabled man to stand up, take his pallet, and walk. Do you want to be healed? Fine, do the impossible. This makes no sense. I mean, it's kind of like someone coming to you and say, you ask, do you want to get out of debt? Fine, pay all your bills. I don't have the money. I know, pay, pay your bills. Hey, do you want to learn how to swim? Great, go jump in the lake. This makes no sense, but here's what Jesus is doing. What Jesus is saying is impossible because Jesus always asks us to do the impossible. He does. Think about it. Love my enemies? Are you, are you kidding me, Jesus? After what they did to me, after they betrayed me, that's impossible. Yeah, do it. Forgive? Are you kidding me? That person hurt me. That person made my life miserable. You want me to forgive that person? Yes, do it. It's impossible. You want me to pray without ceasing? Lord, Lord, I can't pray for five minutes. You want me to pray without ceasing? That's impossible. Yes, do it. You want me to give to the church? Lord, I, I, I'm hurting financially. I don't have nothing to give. It's impossible. Yes, do it. You want me to tell people about Jesus? Are you kidding me? I, I'm so shy. I'm so embarrassed to talk to someone. There's no way I can talk to anyone about Jesus. That's impossible. Yes, do it. All through Scripture, we find that whenever Jesus asks us to do the impossible, he will always give us the means to do it. Every time Jesus asks us to do the impossible, he will give us the means to do it. And Jesus is telling this man to do the impossible. But if he's obedient to Jesus, he's going to try, and he's going to do it. There's going to come a time in your life, many times probably, when the Lord is going to ask you to do something. And you have a window of opportunity to decide if you're going to do it. You have this window of opportunity. This man had a window of opportunity. When Jesus said, stand up, take your pallet and walk, that wasn't forever. He said, right now, you got to do it now. you got to make your choice. Many times, God is going to give us an assignment, something to do, and we have that window of opportunity. On June 5th, 1944, it was 4 a.m. in the morning, General Dwight Eisenhower, staff in England, was talking about, at that time, the largest invasion in history, D-Day. A Scottish meteorologist came in the room and, and was talking about the weather because everything hinged on the weather. The meteorologist was giving his report to Eisenhower, and he said there's going to be a 36-hour where the 3,000-foot ceiling would be three feet, Normandy, English Channel. In 36 hours, it has to happen during this time or it won't happen. Those who were in the room said that Dwight Eisenhower just, just looked at him for about 45 seconds and finally said, do it. Later on, Eisenhower said, I realized I had this window of opportunity. If we didn't do it now, it wasn't going to be done. If we didn't take it now, the opportunity would be lost. This man lying before Jesus had a window of opportunity to obey Jesus. And if he didn't take it, he would not be able to walk. So it's possible some of you here tonight, some of you watching online... You have a window of opportunity. God is telling you to do something. And you have a window of opportunity to obey. 
And you need to be like this man who says, I'm going to get up and I'm going to follow. Notice after the command, the changes in this man. The changes in this man. This man has changed. Now, we, we've said it before on Sunday mornings, going through the book of Luke, look, looking at stories from Luke. Whenever you have an encounter with Jesus, you're going to be changed. I mean, if you tell me you've had an encounter with Jesus and your life's not changed, you really haven't had an encounter with Jesus. This man is going to change. Notice how he changed. His body changed because he's now, he's walking. Verse 9, immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Immediately, suddenly, on the spot, no hesitation. This man who could not stand, now he's standing. This man who has no strength is now strong. This man picks up his pallet, his bed, and walks. He changed his body. Before he couldn't walk, now he could walk. Before he had no strength, and now he has strength. You see, when sometimes when God does a miracle in our life, it may happen immediately, instant, uh, uh, without hesitation. Sometimes it takes a while. But whatever the case, we're going to be changed. His body changed, and now he's walking. Number two, his behavior changed. Because now he's worshiping. Verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple. By the way, he couldn't have gone to the temple before. Number one, he couldn't get there. Number two, he wasn't allowed to because of his physical condition. You know, whenever you have an encounter with Jesus, you're, you're going to change your behavior because you're going to worship. People who really have an encounter with Jesus, they're going to worship Jesus. When people have an encounter with Jesus, you know what? They don't have to wait for the right conditions to worship Jesus. They don't have to wait for the right kind of music, the right kind of song, the right kind of speaker, or the right kind of temperature. If they had an encounter with Jesus, they can worship Jesus. His behavior changed, and now he's worshiping. Third, his boldness changed because now he's witnessing. He's witnessing. The Pharisees, scribes came to him and asked him, no, what, what, what's going on? He's been cured, and so now he's being criticized. By the way, don't be surprised whenever you have an encounter with Jesus, you will be attacked and criticized by the world or someone. The scribes come to him and said, why are you doing this? Verse 10, it is the Sabbath, not permissible for you to carry your pallet. By the way, they had rules for the Sabbath. There's certain things you couldn't do. The only, for example, you couldn't carry your bed. That was considered work, and so he was breaking the law. And they said, who told you this? Verse 12, he said, who who, who said this? The man, verse 13, the man who had been healed did not know who he was, for Jesus slipped away. He didn't know who he was. Verse 14, he finds Jesus, or Jesus finds him. He tells him who he is. And what does he do? He goes back to the Jews and tells them. He's witnessing. They attacked him. They criticized him. He comes back. He said, let me tell you, his name is Jesus. Now, I've always wondered, now, Jesus could have waited 24 hours, and you wouldn't have had this scene. But Jesus did not wait 24 hours. See, Jesus was teaching all the people something very important. We still need to understand the 21st century. Loving God is greater than tradition. You see, they thought you couldn't carry your pallet because that was against their tradition. And Jesus said, no, loving God is more important. You've heard me say this before. I think every Christian needs to examine what is tradition and what is biblical. And you'll be surprised sometimes we, we get confused. Uh, my second church, we moved our uh, worship time from 11 a.m. to 10.30. And I was accused of not believing the Bible because we move the worship service because the Bible says it's 11 o'clock on Sunday. It's not, but I was accused. 
you know, ironically, if you want to be, I mean, the early church, they used to go at 6 a.m. Anybody want to start that tradition? You know, they started at 11 o'clock because of the agricultural system. But, but I had some people, seriously, they really were upset. They thought we were going against the Bible. They were really concerned that we were breaking God's law. Listen, before you're critical of anything, just ask the question, is it a biblical principle or is it a tradition? We need to know the difference. This man was criticized for a tradition. But what does he do? When he finds out who Jesus is, he goes back to them, and he tells them his name is Jesus. For 38 years, there's been no change in this man. For 38 years, and now he's a changed man. Do you know why he had to wait for 38 years for a miracle? He was looking at the wrong thing. He had been looking down when he should have been looking up. He was looking for the stirring when he should have been looking at the Savior. He'd been looking to the water rather than the one who made the water. And tonight, if you're looking for anyone or anything else other than Jesus to change your life, it won't happen. You will never be made whole. It is impossible. If you're looking maybe for, uh, your, like I said, maybe a relationship to change you or your friends to change you or the government to change you, no, it's not going to happen. It's not. Only Jesus can change you. And that Jesus tonight might ask you a strange question. Do you really want eternal life? Of course I do, Jesus. Do you really want eternal life? It's a gift, but it's going to cost you everything. Because I will turn your life upside down. What about tonight? If you're watching online and you want to give your life to our Lord Jesus Christ, if you text us the word today at 270-398-5005, and a minister will give you a call. If you're here tonight and there's a decision you need to make, as we begin to sing, just come to the front, talk to me or one of the ministers in the front row, and just ask for prayer or give your life to Christ or join this church or whatever it may be. But Jesus is still in the changing people business. Would you stand and bow your heads? Our Father in heaven, we ask you tonight to speak to us in a very personal way. Father, it's very possible you are asking us that strange question, do do we really want eternal life? Do we really want you to come in our life to, to turn our world upside down? And Father, the answer is yes. And Father, we pray tonight that you will take us and change us and use us for your kingdom. And when you ask us, Father, to do the impossible, let us be reminded you always give us the means. In Jesus' name, amen.